This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am one of the hosts of the channel, Shatran Mall. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Joyata Sarkar about her new book, Plowshares and Swords, India's Nuclear Program in the Global Cold War, which was published by Cornell University Press in July 2022. Professor Sarkar is currently Associate Professor of Economic and Social History at the University of Glasgow, prior to which she was an Assistant Professor at Boston University. So welcome to the podcast today, Joyata. Thank you very much, Shatran Jai. Thank you for joining us today. It's great to speak with you. Um, Our first question is always biographical, so I'd like to ask you about your background. Where did you grow up and how did you become a historian of modern South Asia? Uh, yeah, thank you again, Shatranjai. It is a delight to be on the podcast. Um, I was born and raised in Calcutta, India, where I spent the first two decades of my life. After that, I moved around quite a bit, uh, first to France, um, then several years in Switzerland, followed by almost a decade in northeastern United States, and uh, now I'm in Scotland uh, in the UK. And uh, for your listeners, uh, you know, Calcutta in India um, uh, today is known as Kolkata. It was officially renamed at the turn of uh, the 21st century. And uh, how did I become a historian of modern South Asia? Um, you know, um, as a child, I was um, fascinated by the past, uh, but I was not as interested in history as a subject taught in school, I know it's strange uh, to, to think that and, and just to, to remember the past. Um, I, it had to do with how it was taught and what was taught. Um, there was very little contemporary and modern history in our textbooks, uh, very little global transnational frameworks of analysis. And so there was a lot about ancient civilizations, Harappa and Mohenjo-daro, the Mughal Empire, British colonialism, um, and the moment of independence of August 1947. And after that, there was no more history. (laughs) It was politics and political science. Um, So once I realized um, that textbook history and history as a discipline are different, two different universes altogether, there was no looking back for me. Um, so I, I received my PhD in history uh, from the Graduate Institute Geneva in Switzerland, uh, which is well known for its strength in um, modern contemporary international history. Um, after all, the Institute was you know, founded to develop expertise for the League of Nations, which is the predecessor of the United Nations today. And 
before my PhD, I obtained a, a master's in sociology from the University of Paris-Sorbonne. And I think I'd go so far as to say that the experience of studying in continental Europe had a, a distinct influence on how I thought about the modern world and um, how I went about writing this book. Thank you. Uh, I'm sure many, many of us who grew up in India would relate to what you said about how after 1947, the history of India after 1947 is re- really not taught in textbooks and how that's something that sort of a lot of us are curious about. So, so thank you for sharing that. I would now like to turn towards talking about your new book, uh, which is a deeply fascinating study of India's nuclear program. Uh, So the title of your book references Plowshares and Swords. Could you tell us a little bit more about this title? Um, And the second part of this question is, how did you come to write this book and what do you see as its major arguments and contributions? Yeah, my my book, Plowshares and uh, Swords, is, is really a global story of um, India's nuclear program uh, during its first 40 years. So from the mid-1940s until the mid-1980s. And the, the title uh, is really, uh, you know, I use swords and plowshares essentially uh, metaphors for nuclear weapons and nuclear energy respectively. Um, and I do that to capture the, the, this dual characteristics of India's nuclear program. Now, the, these these metaphors, plowshares and swords, swords and plowshares, uh, depict the, the distinction or the dichotomy between peace and war. Mm-hmm. And my argument is that there was no dichotomy between weapons of war and weapons of peace um, in the context of uh, India's nuclear program, and that those were entangled um, by design from the onset. Um, so the use of these metaphors, you know, swords and plowshares is really not new. They're derived from this biblical verse, you know, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks, and indicating the possibility of a world without war, right? Something that we can definitely um, understand, I think resonates with us today in the present moment uh, in the context of Ukraine. Um, interestingly, um, this, the Soviet government back in the late 1950s uh, gifted a bronze sculpture uh, to the United Nations, and it still stands there today um, in, in, in the UN uh, in New York. Um, and it was called Let Them Beat Their Swords into Plowshares. And it shows this the sculpture of a, a man with a hammer beating a sword into a plowshare. <laughs> Um, in the 1970s, though, uh, U.S. defense intellectuals, such as um, Albert Wallstetter and others, uh, used, once again, these metaphors of swords and plowshares in the context of nuclear weapons, uh, in the context of nuclear proliferation, which is a, a, a conceptual term that political scientists use to describe development of nuclear weapons by countries. Now, your second question <laughs> Um, was, you know, how did I come to write this book and the arguments. Now, the title, which I just explained, I think can be better, uh, can be further explained, uh, through, uh, or significance uh, especially uh, uh, underlined through the arguments. Now, the title and the arguments uh, challenge the received wisdom about India's nuclear program. Now, what is this received wisdom? Uh, this received wisdom divides India's nuclear program into peaceful and military phases. So um, the conventional wisdom goes that the peaceful phase uh, began in 1947 
with independence, and it lasted until the 1980s. And the so-called weaponization phase, I would, you know, I have it in my book within quotes, um, weaponization phase said to have begun in the 1980s in response to Pakistan's nuclear weapons program and consolidated after the nuclear tests of May 1998. Now, what this received wisdom has done is that it has it has really uh, it has led to this uh, false understanding that the formative years of India's nuclear program is essentially a prehistory of the nuclear weapons project. So what I do in my book is that I challenge this I challenge this received wisdom by showing how the choices made during the 1940s until the 1980s uh, were, were were really um, were really pivotal. Uh, for what followed in the late 80s and the late 90s. And so um, I make three arguments, which I'll explain very briefly. And perhaps, you know, in the rest of the conversation, uh, we can uh, gradually uh, discuss them further. So the first argument is that India's nuclear program was a dual-use endeavor, simultaneously serving civilian and military ends not because of the nature of nuclear technologies, but owing to deliberate plans and decisions undertaken by the Atomic Energy Commission of India, later on the Department of Atomic Energy or the DAE. In other words, um, I argue that the, the it's not an energy program that developed into a weapons program over time, but that was conceived as both from the onset. So. My book is not a story of plowshares, two swords, but it is a story of plowshares and swords uh, entangled uh, because it was intended as such. Um, and so what I what I find is that the, the program's dual use characteristics was manifest in the kinds of technologies the leaders of India's nuclear program were procuring, the infrastructure that they were building, the kind of training that they were uh, they were trying to get and they were often receiving. And above all, all of this was undertaken through foreign partnerships um, on both sides of the uh, the Cold War divide, but to an extent a bit more from the West. Um, and not just the United States, but also uh, continental Europe, notably France. The second argument is that um, India's... Uh, a space program, which was very closely related to the nuclear program, was also dual use. And this was done to keep the nuclear program uh, in, in a way that the nuclear program was kept separate from the space program. And the leaders did that. Uh, by leaders, I mean both the political leaders who took a very keen interest in these two important programs and also scientific institution builders like Homi Bhava, like Vikram Sarabhai. Um, and so we find, I find that um, they did so in this, in the sense they developed and nurtured a dual-use space program to benefit from foreign cooperation in outer space without arousing the suspicion of the non-proliferation regime. And so uh, the same individuals and groups were leading both programs. Um, for example. Homi Bhava was in charge of nuclear and space. Um, Sarabhai was managing space under Homi Bhava until he became uh, the chairman, and then you know, he created ISRO as separate. But there were always these very clear overlaps in, with respect to the space and the nuclear programs. So as a result of that, 
I find that Indian scientists and engineers were able to master know-how for missiles and, and uh, you know, through rockets and satellite launch vehicles. And at the same time, they're working on underground nuclear explosions. Now, what that did is that from the perspective of the global non-proliferation regime, often led by U.S. policymakers, whether they are deciding what to do about India's nuclear program in Washington, D.C. or in Vienna at the IAEA, is that their, their expectation was, 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 was a linear one. That is, a country will develop nuclear weapons through first conducting a nuclear test, and then they will develop delivery vehicles, because that was what the United States had done and the, and the Soviet Union had done. Um, but in the Indian context, um, in, throughout the Cold War, that was nonlinear. And that is the development of nuclear devices and delivery vehicles were concurrent and parallel mm-hmm. uh, and not sequential. Uh, my third and final argument um, is about uh, borders uh, and, uh, and and the significance of uh, borderlands. And I argue that um, India's nuclear programs, you know, geopolitical dimensions become very clear when we pay attention to the intermestic characteristic of the territorial threats. So uh, uh, I I I take this um, I take this framework called intermestic from mm-hmm. historians. Frederick Logval and Campbell Craig, uh, meaning the interface between national and the domestic. And I argue in the book, and then I show uh, in various chapters that said that to the Indian, to the post-colonial Indian nation states, securing borderlands mattered just as much as protecting borders itself. And so we need to pay attention to uh, to, to to this very interesting, uh, uh, very very interesting. Uh, dynamic of the fluidity of internal, external, domestic, international, inside, outside, uh, to make sense of what would geopolitical threats meant in the Indian context. So not just look at wars like 47, 65, 71, but also the, the uncertainty and insecurity with instances like Sikkim, uh, instances like, um, uh, the d- different uh, secessionist movements in the Northeast, Naxalite movement in West Bengal, all of those influenced what geopolitical insecurities meant to New Delhi and not just wars. Uh, and the reason is, you know, this br- bring the readers back to the received wisdom that I started out with is that the received wisdom claims that the first 40 years of India's nuclear program were peaceful. And as a result, the key motivations were prestige and and or domestic politics. So I argue that neither was the case. Uh, Leaders of India's nuclear program were pursuing both from the onset and that geopolitics was also a key motivation, not only, but also. I'm going to stop there (laughs) and um, I'm going to. Uh, I'm going to wait for you to ask more questions, and I'm sorry to 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 get into um, all the details of my argument at once. Uh, no worries. No, thank you so much. Uh, I, I think that you, uh, you've you've elaborated sort of the significance of your book and the key stakes of your book um, in great detail. So thank you so much for doing that. Um, and I'll ask you further questions later about um uh so ab- about some of the specific specific arguments that you discuss about and some of the specific themes that you mention. So before delving more deeply into your book, I had a question about your research for this book. So uh, where did you do your research and what sorts of archives and sources did you use? 
yeah, that's that's a really important question. Uh, so um, this book began as my PhD, my my, my my doctoral dissertation back in 2010, and so I would say that I've done about uh, 10 years or so, uh, maybe nine and a half years of archival research. And um, when I started off this project back in 2010, I would say there was there was very little on India's nuclear program in terms of declassified archival documents. Um, and um, over time, things improved. But um, there were several instances where archives were available several years after the dissertation. Um, but that meant that I had the opportunity to incorporate those documents because I, I spend more time uh, reflecting um, from the dissertation to the book. But it also meant that I had to do a lot of new research, a lot of uh, new writing, and in some cases, you know, new you know, reconceptualization. Um, so I, I've done research uh, in about, I think, uh, six countries mm-hmm. uh, and 16 on-site archives. And the reason was that there was very little on India's nuclear program in India. And, uh, and and because I wanted to tell a global story, I, I wanted to bring in documents from uh, from France, from from the UK, from Canada, from US, also international organizations like the IAEA mm-hmm. in Vienna. Um, and obviously the Indian archives were extremely important, the National Archives of India, which declassified a lot of uh, important and interesting documents uh, from the Ministry of External Affairs files. The Nehru Memorial was excellent. Uh, TIFR archives, the Tata Institute of Fundamental Research, um, the Sahai Institute of Nuclear Physics well, was also quite helpful mm-hmm. in, uh, in 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 uh, in my hometown uh, of Calcutta. Um, so all in all, I would say um, I I did uh, multi archival, multilingual on-site research in, in several countries. And I also incorporate a lot of digitized archives mm-hmm. from the Wilson Center Digital Archive and the British Library's Endangered Archives Program. I think the the, 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 the story about Sikkim could have not been told without the Sikkim Palace archives, okay. uh, which are digitized at the British Library. Um, but yes, that meant uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of archival work. Um, now I want to share, you know, my my uh, uh, my motivation in in terms of, you know, why not? Why did I not do um, interviews? And I I did not want to write a book about India's nuclear program based on interviews because a lot of that had already been done, and and those those, those are excellent books by you know people like George Perkovich um, and and Raj Chengappa. And they were, and also Robert Anderson, and they were excellent books, but they were written a lot of them at a time when uh, we did not have enough archival documents, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of that meant that we had to take what the interviewee was telling us uh, on face value, and um, I wanted to make sure I was uh, I was really getting into. Uh, what the documents had to say, but also not take that on face value. So go to multiple archives to make sure that I can um, I, I can triangulate to the extent possible. And so it took me a lot of time, uh, but I wanted to uh, avoid writing the history of India's nuclear program based on interviews because there were excellent books done already at a time documents were not available. Thank you. 
So the, the nuclear age uh, began at the eve of India's independence. You talk about this, I think, um, in your in, in the early part of your book about like the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki happening just two years before India's independence. Um, and your book frames modern India's history within this context of the nuclear age and the global Cold War. Um, and what, something that I found very interesting was that the origins of India's nuclear program precede formal decolonization. Um, so you've already mentioned this briefly, but could you tell us about the conception of India's nuclear program and some of the individuals and organizations involved with conceiving it? Yeah, yeah, I I, I, I love that, that, you know, uh, you, you found that uh, intriguing. And you know, I, I think it's really important uh, for uh, for us scholars uh, who are studying post-colonial India and also the readers to understand that uh, there, there was something very distinct about about India's nuclear program and specifically about the role of science mm-hmm. in, in future India, that, that, that which influenced how India's nuclear program was per- perceived by, um, uh, by the leaders, future leaders. And um, in terms of that, I find that, you know, in order to make sense of India's nuclear program, we really ought to go back <laughs> in time, not, not, not too far, um, but at least in the Second World War. And um, institutionally, I find that the roots of India's nuclear program can be traced to CSIR, or the Council of Scientific and Industrial Research, um, which was formed during the Second World War by the colonial, the British colonial government. And it was modeled on the British uh, Department of Scientific and Industrial Research. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the, the individual here is SS, uh, uh, SS Bhatnagar, uh, who played a very important role. Uh, in terms of the, of the organization of atomic energy um, in soon to be independent India and then and then recently independent India, um, one of the things that you know really stands out, and here I would like to you know draw your attention and also uh, attention of the listeners to uh, this excellent book uh, published a few years ago. It definitely helped uh, you know helped me to think through these uh, this 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 time period is the book called Atomic State by Janavi Falke, and uh, she she really does this terrific job and really inspired a lot of my own thinking on this topic about uh, the transnational networks of scientists mm-hmm. um, and what that meant for soon to be independent India. Um, so. Uh, the the CSIR or the Council of Scientific and Industrial Research established the Atomic Energy Research Committee uh, just a year before India's independence in 1946, and. Um, it was the first step towards organization of nuclear fission research in India. It was the first meeting that was held in uh, in May 1946, uh, and interestingly, in, um, in 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 Bombay House, the headquarters of the Tata Industries, and uh, Homi Bhava, who by then has become the founding director of the Tata Institute of Fundamental Research. That story begins in 1944. As you can tell, the Second World War is still very much on in 1944. Uh, so Homi Bhava by then was already the founding director of TIFR, uh, and he was also related to the Tata family himself. He chaired the meeting. And um, from what we know that, uh, uh, that at the meeting of the Board of Atomic Energy Research, there was 
Homi Bhava, who was chairing the meeting, uh, but the chairman of Tata Sons, GRD Tata, was also present. And obviously, the influence of the Tatas cannot be ignored by the fact that it was at Bombay House that the first meeting was taking was taking place. Thank you. That's really fascinating to hear about all of these individuals, um, all of these scientists, this transnational network of scientists who are involved in crafting India's nuclear program, the early stage of India's nuclear program, and also the role of the Tatas, uh, which uh, recent books, um, like I think Mircha Rainu's book about the Tatas shows how closely connected they were with, um, you know, nation building. So that, that's really fascinating to hear about the Tatas' close connection with the origins of uh, India's nuclear program. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, sorry to interrupt. I, I will say that I have uh, learned a lot from the book that just came out by Mircea Ryanu. He and I have been in touch before his book was out to discuss, you know, the role of Tatas in, uh, in nuclear fission in terms of what he calls in you know, this uh, thing is chapter three of his books, uh, strategic philanthropy. And I think it, it what I found in my work, it it really, it made a lot of sense. It clearly uh, resonated with what I saw in terms of my own research about the role of the Tatas in India's nuclear um, project. Thank you. So post-colonial India's relationship with Imperial France was a crucial part of the early stage of India's nuclear program uh, amidst efforts to secure raw materials for nuclear energy. So could you tell us a little more about this and about how Indian governmental and scientific uh, agencies navigated this embryonic stage of the nuclear program in like the late 1940s and 1950s? Certainly. Um, when I started, and I'll, I'll, I'll go a little back, uh, a back, I mean, take a step back from the book. Uh, when I started this research, um, and as I said at the beginning of this interview, that uh, studying in continental Europe had uh, had an influence on how uh, this book was written. And that is to say that my, my dissertation uh, was focusing essentially on, on the French story of India's nuclear program, which I felt was largely ignored. Uh, growing up in India, I never heard about mm -hmm. it. And so um, I was very interested and, and intrigued by it. And, you know, be studying in French-speaking Switzerland, um, having moved there from Paris, uh, I've, I felt that you know I do have the language skills to to bring that story um, to the mm -hmm. world. Um, so th the French angle um, was very important at the dissertation stage, but I would say became far less important at the book level uh, because I found that the French are really interesting and important, but only to a certain extent. And which brings me to your question about the role of France in India's nuclear program. And I think the role of France was really important in the early years, and which is also your question, is this embryonic stage of the nuclear program. And it had to do with the fact that, um, it's interesting to think about, but it has to do with the fact that India and, uh, and France, or post-war France and post-colonial India, were experiencing similar obstruction in terms of their their pursuit of nuclear fission projects, that is their national nuclear programs, uh, from, uh, from, from the Anglo-American information censorship um, uh, regime that, were, that had emerged during the Second World War and also existed in the, in the post-war years. And so because France as a country 
did not participate in the Manhattan Project because it was occupied during the war. Uh, but at the same time, it had um, it it had uh, scientific personnel um, that were that were individually involved. So people like Bertrand Goldschmidt and others who who emerge in my book uh, several times. Like they're, they're they're Goldschmidt is present all the way until the 1980s in the book because he's important uh, for India's nuclear program. Uh, but I I find that in the early years, India and France experienced. The, a, a similar obstruction from the Anglo-American uh, information censorship in terms of access to raw materials like uranium uh, or thorium, uh, in terms of censorship, as I said. So uh, French physicists and chemists, when they returned back to France after participating in the Manhattan Project, there were five French uh, scientists who did, uh, they still had wartime pledges of secrecy. Uh, so they couldn't fully contribute to their own nuclear programs. Uh, and the other thing was, you know, France, just uh, similar to India, had um, had a dual-use nuclear program. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the, the French government initially said it was peaceful and then um, said they're developing weapons after um, after Indochina, the, the Battle of the Indian Fu. Uh, but in the early years, we find both nuclear programs have similar aspirations, and they're also being um, being um, obstructed by by the same set of state actors. And I think that that really helped in uh, in in the two sides coming together. Thank you. That was really fascinating because like you, I had very little idea growing up about the role of France in uh, India's nuclear program. It was really fascinating to read about this um, in your book and about the close cooperation or, or close connection between uh, France and India and how France felt sort of excluded from the Anglo-American sphere as far as the nuclear program uh, was concerned. You begin the third chapter uh, by referencing U.S. President Eisenhower's famous Atoms for Peace speech in which he advocated a peaceful use um, of nuclear energy. Uh, so as the Cold War heated up in the 1950s and early 1960s, how did the Indian state navigate the, these Cold War tensions and the superpower rivalry between the U.S. and the Soviet Union as it pursued its own nuclear program? Yeah, um, the, the third chapter, uh, you know, is, is really an examination of how India's nuclear program expanded um, in response to uh, the Eisenhower administration's um, Adams for Peace speech and all the all the institutional outcomes that followed. And by that, I mean the, the creation of the International Atomic Energy Agency in Vienna. Um, so. In, in, in response to your earlier question about France, I had said that um, India and France as this post-colonial India, post-war France experienced you know, very similar situation in terms of the, the world, the, the post-war world that they, that they encountered uh, in terms of things being closed as an access to strategic materials relevant for fission being uh, closed mm-hmm. because of uh, Anglo-American stockpiling efforts and then censorship. All of that changes with Eisenhower's Atoms for Peace, which is a speech, but then that's followed by uh, institutional outcomes. And that is, all of a sudden, uh, the U.S. government um, decides to op- open up uh, uh, open up the marketplace. And so the third chapter, I call it, the nuclear marketplace opens for business. And 
essentially what that meant for India's nuclear program. That is finally uh, India's uh, India's uh, leaders, both Jawaharlal Nehru, who took a very keen interest in the nuclear program, and Homi Pava, who was then, uh, you know, he's considered father of India's nuclear program. He was the chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission, and then he becomes secretary of the Department of Atomic Energy. So I find that India's nuclear program overnight radically expands and and at the same time we have the Adams for Peace and the IAEA's negotiation of the statute that takes place from 54 to 57 and obviously uh, it's not obvious to a lot of scholars who you know who probably don't uh, pay attention to India's post-colonial uh, Indian foreign policy what uh, you know Nehru was doing at many of these international organizations but uh, from for those of us who have been who pay attention we find that uh, Nehru is in Bandung at this mm-hmm. moment of you know Afro-Asian solidarity and we have Homi Bhava in uh, this, this time in Geneva at the first uh, UN conference in peaceful use of atomic energy. He's he's chairing the session right, because he is a representative of an online country. Um, so what I find it's fascinating that uh, the Cold War divide per se that you said doesn't really um, hamper India's nuclear program per se, but rather it is actually uh, actually helpful. It, it, it facilitates because India can finally enter the marketplace because of Adams for Peace as a non-aligned country and is able to uh, procure technology technologies from whoever is willing to offer. Um, so that's what I find happens with Adams for Peace and thereafter. Thank you. That's really interesting to hear about how suddenly like the, the nuclear marketplace opened up for um, India and like n- n- maybe non-aligned countries in the 1950s with um, Eisenhower's speech and sort of the institutional policies that were pursued at that time. Um, so something else that you also talk about is how India's policies towards its nuclear and space programs were shaped by its difficult relationship with the People's Republic of China from the late 1950s through the 1970s. So could you tell us how the vicissitudes of Sino-Indian relations, such as the Sino-Indian War of 1962 uh, and China's nuclear tests during the 1960s impacted the development of India's nuclear program? Yeah, um, I find that uh, that Indian policymakers and those scientists who were close to um close to policymakers, thinking about Homi Pava, thinking about Sarabhai um, and others, I, I find that they, they, are, they were very concerned about China from a very long time. And uh, in terms of, you know, um, it's it's hard to find the moment when it begins. I would say, you know, the, it's the uh, 1950, perhaps, um, the Chinese, uh, the PLA entered Tibet. Uh, but in terms of your specific question, you know, it's not about Indian foreign policy, it's about exactly the nuclear and space programs. Um, I find that, you know, um, in the, the Indian Atomic Energy Act of 1962 uh, is really is an important piece of legislation. And uh, scholars who are interested, not just in the nuclear program, but also um, Indian geopolitics, India's perception of, you know, what's happening with respect to China, we need to pay more attention to this act, because um, this act replaced the 1948 Indian Atomic Energy Act. And uh, unlike uh, 
so so what the 1962 atomic energy act does is that it's just uh, it's passed very quickly uh in the indian parliament and if you look at it you'll find that you know it's it's this it's it's it allows secrecy it allows taking over territory uh it allows you know it's basically an as anti-democratic as one could get mm-hmm. um while becoming or calling itself a, a piece of legislation passed within passed in the parliament of the largest democracy in the world um and i and i i argue in my book that uh, it's really important to pay attention to this legislation and what followed thereafter so there were certain techno techno political choices made by um, the leaders of india's nuclear program thereafter in terms of plutonium reprocessing plant which began a little bit before uh certain various kinds of power reactors that would allow plutonium stockpiling um space projects uh, which i started our interview with uh, so i find that that what indian policymakers and those close to uh policy while being scientists began to adopt this uh, this policy of hyper diversification mm-hmm. that they were going to get various kinds of technologies to meet various kinds of uh various kinds of uh, uh technopolitical projects that would serve uh military and civilian goals at the same time and a lot of that had to do with what's happening with china but interestingly uh the act is you know just a few months before the actual war of october 1962 but anybody who has read the history of the war knows that those tensions did not begin in october 62 mm-hmm. they they were uh, they they preceded um the war itself which brings me to my one of my you know <laughs> my arguments about intermestic mm-hmm. we need to pay attention to intermestic characteristics of geopolitical threats um so to answer your question um how did uh, sino indian tensions influence india's nuclear and space programs i would say that, that it is really influential uh i think we we really need to pay attention to the history of that relationship to make sense of what's what happened with respect to those choices uh in terms of the nuclear and space program because after uh the first chinese nuclear test which took place in october 1964 there was this major debate um within the congress party that india should get nuclear weapons and at the time indian prime minister lal bahadur shastri said no way um and then there was uh there was another debate in the parliament which i i i discuss in my book and it is in this debate that we find that he says no but then he also allows homi bhava to undertake underground nuclear explosions mm-hmm. uh, which is you know the nuclear explosions project that uh, that uh, makes the know-how available to indian scientists to undertake the peaceful nuclear explosion that they do they call it peaceful in may 1974 so we see that india's india's nuclear explosion and project emerged as a response to chinese nuclear weapons tests and the chinese don't stop there they conduct several nuclear tests there's a 65 war with pakistan um there is a hydrogen bomb test uh in 1967 the same year there are skirmishes between the indian army and the pla in sikkim um which i i discuss uh, a lot in the book because i want i wanted my readers to pay more attention to these small skirmishes because i want uh, the readers and even just scholars and students to uh, to take into account the intramestic characteristics of territorial threats because they do have um important effects on on choices the in the indian 
leaders made. Thank you. Yes, I think this section of your book just reminds us how important it is to study Sino-Indian connections or Sino-Indian relations and how uh, the threat of um, China, the perceived threat of China, real or perceived, however you want to speak about it, like how that um, influenced uh, India's, um, you know, nuclear program, space program and um, so on. So so that, that, that was very interesting. So the 1970s were a turbulent era for South Asia. Uh, could you tell us about some of the major historical events of this period and how they influenced India's nuclear program? Yeah. Um, so in in the in, in the nineteen seventies, you know, it's, I I discussed this uh, in this in chapter six of my book called Fractured Worlds, and um, I it's it's called as such because it's just uh, it's just it's set as an unraveling of sorts and uh, there is obviously the war uh, that uh, that led to the creation of bangladesh uh, but there are also there, there are also various kinds of um, uh, issues you know within uh, within the in the, the territorial indian nation state uh, not not to mention that uh, that you know, Indira Gandhi uh, is experiencing various you know various kinds of challenges within the the party itself, uh, and then you know she she consolidated her um, her 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 leadership and at 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 high cost as to what that meant for Indian democracy, and this is prior to the emergency. Um, so the 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 nineteen seventies in terms of a nuclear program specifically, I think the nineteen seventy one war is quite important, not just the war itself or the outcome of uh, a new sovereign nation state, but the but the fact that the war was so short, uh, that it was a 13-day war, and it was kept short essentially to prevent, you know, at, in, any, in any further spillover that could challenge, quote-unquote, the territorial integrity of the nations, of the Indian nation mm-hmm. states. So what would, what would it mean if it, if it spilled over um, into uh, West Bengal that was already taking a lot of refugees. Uh, what would that mean for the Naxalite program, which was anti-state? Uh, what would that mean for the calls for greater autonomy by the Chogyal of Sikkim, uh, which you know, th- th- that tension has been going on since the, since the 1960s? Um, and then w- what would that, uh, what would an ongoing war uh, over East Pakistan slash Bangladesh mean for India's Northeast, right? Uh, and so th- those tensions really come to a head uh, in the 1970s, and and I explore that in the sixth chapter of my book. Um, outside um, outside India, I find that you know uh, um, that India's reputation as this leader of the non-aligned movement uh, is is no longer sustainable mm-hmm. in the 1970s, um, not to mention uh, the, the oil crisis. So I find that the, the oil crisis, on the one hand, definitely affected India without question, mm-hmm. although Prime Minister Indira Gandhi you know, supported um, uh, the oil embargo uh, and she was able to get several uh, bilateral agreements with countries like Iran, countries like Iraq, uh, to get oil. And I, and I discussed that in the book. But um, what I also discuss is that the 1973 um, oil, oil crisis became the stage, the uh, rhetorical stage, on which the Department of Atomic Energy claimed that an underground nuclear explosion in Pokhran was necessary 
for oil. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, as as I go into the uh, as I went into the archives, I found that um, you know one of the first visits by uh, folks from BARC, the Bhabha Atomic Re uh, Research Center in Pokhran, was to say that they were engineers from the ONGC, uh, the Oil and Natural Gas Corporation, to looking for oil because of an oil price drop. Uh, <laughs> that's what they first told the villagers of uh, of, of, of Ketalai, which is the closest human uh, habitation to Pokhran today, even today. Um, so there is this, in, there is this in, uh, integral relationship between the plowshare program, which is spelled you know in the in a u.s way because the, it's a u.s program uh the plowshare program of underground nuclear explosions uh and um and that has its origins in oil crisis of perceived oil crisis and then i go to the 74 explosion where the 1973 oil, sh oil shock provided this kind of a uh, rhetorical stage on which the underground nuclear explosion was claimed as a plowshare uh, for the moment at least Thank you. That was that's really interesting um, to hear about um, um, the explosion or the peaceful nuclear explosion, the circumstances leading up to it um, in May 1974, which is actually what I'm going to ask you about next. So uh, on May 18, 1974, uh, the Indian government announced that it had conducted what it called a peaceful nuclear explosion. I think it's also called like Smiling Buddha. Um, Mm -hmm. What sort of nuclear test was this and what was the global response to it? It's always sort of intrigued me that what, what, what does it mean to have a peaceful nuclear explosion? So could you just tell us a little more about this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this, this has been, I mean, you know, the, the P&E uh, of India's explosion of May 1974 has been debated and discussed you know, just, just uh, for decades Right. And and interestingly, uh, on May 18, 1974, uh, the Indian government conducted uh, an underground nuclear explosion, uh, which it claimed was for peaceful purposes. In other words, it claimed it was an experiment. Uh, it was an experiment to see whether the government can conduct similar explosions to for civilian ends, mm -hmm. civilian engineering ends like mining like oil exploration, which I just mentioned, um, and, you know, just uh, changing course of rivers, etc. Um, so, th so that's what the, so essentially there is, uh, th that, so, so th there is no distinction between a nuclear weapon and, and a nuclear device um, that is considered to be for, for peaceful ends. It's really a, it's a question of how it is being justified um, and what the, what the stated uh, intent is. In terms of technology, it's the same. And uh, what, is, what is important for PEs is that they, they were a category of explosions that existed uh, in, in the international organizations such as the IAEA as countries can undertake such explosions for civilian ends. The only difference was that it was the superpowers, the United States was doing it. I just mentioned the Plowshare program. Um, there were several explosions that the U.S. undertook in places like uh, Colorado, New Mexico, and, and, uh, and elsewhere uh, for civilian ends, including uh, a, a private public endeavor called gas buggy to to use nuclear explosions for what is considered fracking today uh, in other words um, that a practice 
of nu- already countries having nuclear weapons, notably the two superpowers, of using nuclear devices for civilian ends existed before May 1974. What changed with May 1974 is that a country that had never conducted a nuclear weapon test, that is India, conducted an underground nuclear explosion and said, this is not a nuclear weapon, this is a PE or a peaceful nuclear explosion, just like the superpowers had done before 74. So that's what happened. <laughs> that's really interesting. Uh, thank you. Uh, so a historical event that you discuss in your book, uh, which is usually elided and forgotten in much commentary about India in the 1970s, is India's absorption of Sikkim uh, in, I think, in the mid-1970s. Uh, so could you tell us more about these circumstances? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think I missed your uh, your second question about uh, Pokhran. And that is, you know, how did the world respond to it? So very quickly, I do have an entire chapter in, entirely on this, which is my chapter seven, Explosion and Fallout. But I'll quickly summarize is that um, the first country to which the Indira Gandhi government informed that they have conducted an underground nuclear explosion was the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they got a phone call. Um, and that's what my chapter begins with. Um, and the U.S. Embassy uh, in New Delhi got a phone call and they learned that India had conducted a nuclear explosion that morning. Um, the Indian policymakers that at, the, at the MEA, the Indian Ministry of External Affairs, were very surprised that the U.S. government's response was rather muted, that they didn't really... Mm-hmm. go about, <laughs> um, they, they didn't seem that upset. And it's, it's so interesting. And this is why the Indian archives are so important, because we could get a very different sense of how India is responding from Canadian or U.S. archives. But what India did was that like, it was very surprised that uh, that Kissinger isn't so upset. <laughs> um, and uh, that uh, had to do with, you know, the, the Nixon administration at the time had a lot on its plate, and that is Watergate. Mm-hmm. But Uh, From the perspective of the U.S. government, India's underground nuclear explosion did matter in the sense that was going to set a poor example for other countries who might do something similar Uh, to the United States. This was going to be um, uh, very difficult to attain what was called non-proliferation, meaning, uh, you know, a blanket policy that uh, new, new countries or countries should not get nuclear weapons. Like that's the bottom line. And so the U.S. response was to develop institutions like the Nuclear Suppliers Group, mm-hmm. uh, which really came out of India's nuclear explosion. Um, that So on the face of it, the official response of the United States was muted. Um, but on the side, the U.S. policymakers became very busy uh, trying to control the marketplace that had opened uh, with Eisenhower and trying to control that through export control mechanisms, which is what the nuclear suppliers group is. Um, Canada was very, very upset because uh, Canadian supplied um, heavy water reactor that produced heavy water, uh, sorry, that produced plutonium was used in the device that uh, that India tested. And um, there were negotiations for several years. And in 76, Canada pulled out. Uh, so uh, that's that essentially was what happened in terms of a global response uh, that uh, there was a new institution 
created, which was the Nuclear mm-hmm. Suppliers Group, and Canada or um, originally being interested in negotiating and finding a solution, but then failing to, and therefore pulling out. And this is also a time when France also starts renegotiating all its agreements with, with India as a response to its nuclear explosion. But India stays uh, firm on its official position that it was an underground nuclear explosion. Um, it was an experiment to see if India could undertake similar explosions for civilian ends. And the world is um, not really uh, understanding what it has done and thinking wrongly that it's a it's, it's a nuclear weapon and your <laughs> second question about sikkim sorry uh, shatrunja if you have a follow-up please go oh, on no, no no please go ahead yes i was just about to ask you about sikkim yes <laughs> yes uh yeah so the, the the annexation of sikkim is uh is is really interesting and important and it's it's a very slow annexation it's uh, you know seventy three to seventy five. That's that's really the timeline. Um, but I I, I discuss Sikkim uh, quite a lot in the book because I find that uh, that that, um, that 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 territory is really important to Indian policymakers. Mm-hmm. You know, from Nehru all the way till the end of my book. You know, back I end with Indira Gandhi. I, I end just before her assassination. Uh, and Sikkim is is a really important. Um, piece of land for India. And I think, and I would direct the readers, uh, if they're interested in the early history about, you know, uh, it, about independence and 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 the how uh, what what that meant for the status of Sikkim, I, I recommend uh, Swati Chawla uh, in Delhi. She just uh, I think defended her dissertation, and she's looking at um, you know India's relationship with places like Bhutan, Sikkim, um, and what that meant for uh, post-colonial mm-hmm. territorial sovereignty. Um, the reason Sikkim is important uh, in 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 this time period is that uh, we, when we think about Pokhran, and I just described, you know, what the nuclear explosion technically was, uh, what that politically meant, what the official U.S. response was, and what India's official position was, uh, and that all of that is accurate. It's also our uh, you know evidence based, but when we pay closer attention to what else is going on in India, we find that um, Sikkim and Pokhran really needs to be analyzed together. Mm -hmm. And then things make a lot more sense. Um, And so I do that in terms of making sense of um, the explosion in Pokhran with the annexation of Sikkim. And I find that in 1973, such an interesting year, uh, that year there was going to be elections in Sikkim. Uh, that year, the excavation begins in Pokhran. And there are several stumbling blocks, uh, just uh, stumbling blocks in the sense that you know, they try to dig the shaft. Uh, because it's an underground nuclear explosion, to dig the shaft, to put the device, and then there are some difficulties, like there is an aquifer that they hit. And I think Raj Chengappa has done an excellent job just describing um, the, 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 the complexity and the contingencies in Pokhran, even after Indira Gandhi took the decision to undertake the nuclear explosion. And so I, I, I compare what that meant for the timeline of Sikkim's election. And this was entirely at the discretion of the Indira Gandhi government. And I find that it's it's we can we can make sense of uh, Sikkim's election timeline and Pokhran explosion very clearly. Uh, Indira Gandhi also decides 
the two together, she decides that India ought to undertake a nuclear explosion. And she also discusses what to do about the Chokyal with RAW. She basically assigns different responsibilities to different agencies. So the DAE and BARC take care of RAW, uh, take care of Pokhran, and RAW takes care of Sikkim. So I I I will I don't want to give away everything <laughs> to our listeners, but I think uh, I, I think there is a lot to be learned in terms of um, what Pokhran meant from the point of view of intramestic geopolitical threats and things that absolutely cannot be made sense of without India's absorption of Sikkim. Thank you for sharing all of that. I can definitely see the significance of uh, India's absorption of Sikkim in relation to your argument about securing borderlands or India's desire to secure borderlands, the intermestic, the concept of the intermestic um, that you discuss. And it's also really fascinating, fascinating to hear about uh, the global response uh, to the Pokhran a new peaceful nuclear explosion and the creation of these bodies like the nuclear suppliers group and so on, uh, which later on at India, I think, tries to get uh, approval for from it I, uh, during the um, nuclear deal with the U.S. in 2008. So that, that, that's really interesting to hear about all of that. So in May 1998, India conducted five nuclear tests confirming India con- confirming its status as a, a nuclear weapons state, um, and this was of course followed in I think just a few weeks uh, by Pakistan's own nuclear tests, which confirmed this dangerous geopolitical rivalry, a nuclear rivalry now between uh, India and Pakistan on the Indian subcontinent. Um, so could you tell us a little more about this? What are the And what are the legacies of India's nuclear program? Um, and, uh, and related to that, um, what is India's status within the contemporary global nuclear order? Yeah, uh, I think that's a, that's a truly excellent question to, uh, to conclude our conversation with. Um, as I started this, this interview, I, I shared with you and, and the listeners that um, the received wisdom that we have is... Um, it's only with 1998 that India became a nuclear weapon state because India conducted five nuclear tests and called them nuclear weapons tests. Right? Nobody said those were peaceful. Um, and what that meant for India's status, uh, not just that, Pakistan also conducted six nuclear tests. So we have 11 nuclear tests, um, underground nuclear tests in, in South Asia in one month. It's just uh, yeah, it's incredible to think about, right? We, we lived through that. I think I was probably um, maybe a teenager at the time, but it's you know, fascinating to think about as an adult. Um, so I, I find that, uh, frankly, the main 1974 um, explosion and the five nuclear tests were, were not that different in the sense that they were all underground. Um, but in terms of, um, you know, what that meant was that, you know, they, they were very, there were difference was really rhetorical justification that the Indira Gandhi government said this was peaceful and the Vajpayee government said we are now a nuclear weapon, te- uh, weapon state. But soon after the 1998 test, there was this uh, now very famous um, foreign affairs article saying against nuclear apartheid by Jaswan Singh. 
And um, but I read that with my students uh, when we discuss this, uh, you know, this, this subject is that it's so similar to um, India's representative V.C. Trivedi in Geneva in the 1960s when he disagreed and disapproved of what became the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. He said that India would cannot be part of a nuclear non-proliferation treaty that was going to instill atomic apartheid. I, th those were his words. And then 1998, uh, the justification by Vajpayee government was against nuclear apartheid, which is a foreign affairs piece that Jaswan Singh wrote. Um, a few years before that, when India had refused to be part of the comprehensive test ban treaty, uh, India's representative. Uh, I had the good fortune of meeting her before she passed away a, a few years ago. Uh, and Arundhati Ghosh, you know, her speech is again reminds us once again that India would like to take an official and strong position against this unequal global nuclear order. And so, when we make sense of on on the external side of things, like keeping the interdomestic out, keeping the the, the duality out, I think a very important part. But in terms of, you know, the global nuclear order, which is what your question is about, you find that there is more continuity. Mm -hmm. There is this more continuity with a set of milestones um, that um, that India's decision to not sign the NPT and then India's nuclear explosion in 74, decision not to be part of the CTBT, extension of the NPT as in being an indefinite treaty, so a permanent characteristic of the nuclear program. Um, and then 2008 is once again very similar. The U.S.-India nuclear deal uh, was uh, this, this, this civil nuclear agreement that meant that India would allow uh, verification and safeguards of its civilian reactors, which means the duality India will have to give up in return for civilian nuclear trade. And they got a waiver, like India got a waiver from the nuclear suppliers group. But then India did not separate everything. Uh, it's not that, you know, India only allowed certain reactors to be open to verification and others were kept aside. Uh, so what I'm trying to say is, you know, the arguments I have made from the 1940s to the 1980s, I would say, uh, hold when we look at India's nuclear program and the choices the policymakers make today is that there is more continuity. Uh, it's not like a different government came to power and things changed. Uh, there were, you know, 1998, yeah, more nuclear tests, but the the rhetoric, the justification, it's it's so similar across the board. It's it's truly fascinating. Thank you. That was really uh, insightful and fascinating to hear. Um, and it was so interesting to hear about your book uh, today. So thank you so much, Joyata, for taking so much time from your busy schedule to talk with me today. Um, so before we end, could you tell us what you're working on now or what you're working on next? Yeah, I'm currently working on two book projects at different levels of completion. Uh, my The one that is you know, exciting me uh, a lot is uh, I'm working on this um, this history of uh, of the idea and practice of partitions um, from South Asia to the world. So I'm interested how how the idea of of, uh, of of partition really came out of South Asia through British colonial administration, mm -hmm. Lord Curzon, essentially, and and how that idea. Um, first went to Ireland and then to the League of Nations in Geneva and then spread across the world to the point that 
the practice and idea of partition today is not considered um, a problem or a strange uh, strange instrument of statecraft, but is you know a very acceptable solution to solve protracted political violence. Obviously, if somebody has grown up in India, I don't think it's a solution in any way. Uh, but I'm interested in examining how did we get here today in the 21st century where we see protracted political violence in a certain part of the world, wherever it is, uh, and we think, hmm, partition may just be a good idea. Like, how did we get here? Uh, and so that's what I'm working on right now. Thank you. Th- thank you, Joyata. That sounds really fascinating. And I look forward to reading your work in the future. Thank you. Uh, so this was an interview with uh, Professor Joyata Sarkar about her book, Plowshares and Swords, India's Nuclear Program in the Global Cold War, which was published uh, by Cornell University Press in 2022. Uh, so, so thank you, Joyata. Thank you so much, Shatran Jai. It was a delight to be on the podcast with you. Thank you.